Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell. Okay, well, welcome everyone. It's a large crowd tonight. Um, we're continuing our Foundations course. This is the second one in the series. We're looking at the subject, as Doug said earlier, of the Bible tonight. So we're really just going to study the book of all books, as it's commonly called. Hopefully you'll understand a little bit why it has that title by the end of tonight. Let me just start. I'll just open in prayer quickly, and then we'll just start with a question. Uh, dear Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We'd ask now that uh, the word of God would be lifted up. Christ would be lifted up tonight by our words, Lord. We pray for this time now that you would bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, if I ask the question, how many books do you think there are in the world? And I'm not talking about like different books of the same book. I mean different titles in the world. Any, just take a guess. This is all... How many? Eight million. Eight million. Okay. Okay. Let's 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 go farther. Billion. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What you know? Well, obviously, <laughs> these are all good guesses. They're nowhere near what I'm going to say. Obviously, you can't. Act, I think it's impossible to actually get an accurate number of the books in the world. But Google because of their Google Books and Google Scholar and these kind of things, they did attempt it a few years back uh, using various search algorithms, all the records in the national libraries and all this kind of stuff. And they came up with the figure of 129,864,880 books in the world. Okay, that was their figure. Now, of course, they did make a disclaimer that uh, as soon as the publishing houses open on Monday morning, that's already out of date. And that's how it goes. So I don't know how old, I think it's like six years old already, that figure. So it's probably way more than that now. Um, and the books of antiquity, who knows? But that's what Google came up with. Now, out of all those books, there is one book that stands as being absolutely unique in the history of the world, both in its impact, in its circulation, and in its composition, in pretty much every way possible. And obviously, most of no prizes for guessing, that is the Bible. And I want to just start, I've probably told, shared this story with some of you before. I was sitting in bed a while ago reading uh, a really old Bible commentary on the book of Daniel. And the guy started his Bible commentary with this little sentence, and I'll read it to you. He said, The Bible is the word of God. All the adjectives and superlatives of all the languages on earth fall short of the necessary adequacies to describe this book of all books. Now, at the time, I remember just reading that sentence and thinking, that is just a brilliant, you know, people don't write like that anymore. That's just old-style writing with reverence for the Word of God. And I started going off on a tangent to Sarah, just kind of, you know, bemoaning the state of contemporary literature, these kind of things. And I said to, I said to Sarah, listen to this, listen to this. And she was there, she was tapping away on her iPad doing something or other. And, uh, so, and I read it to her again and I gave it full effect I pronunciated everything well and I just made, tried to make it sound she just kind of paused for a minute turned, looked at me and she said so what you're basically saying is there's not enough words to describe how fab it is and I said well, yeah and she was like, right and she was gone and I'd, I'd lost her and I was kind of, start, like, kind of thinking well, you, but when I think about it she did, she did sum up my, my point quite well and uh, even so, however you want to say it, like that or like this, a few hundred years ago, it is true. The Bible is different to all other books. However, such a view today is not particularly popular. How many of you have heard this little phrase? You've probably read it on Facebook, to be honest, more often than not. It's just a fairy tale. I don't believe in fairy tales. Have you heard that? It seems to be very popular at the moment, that, that, that kind of opposition to the Bible and it's usually made, like I say, in Facebook threads where there can be no proper engagement and it's, it's usually just kind of thrown out by if, in all honesty people who don't they haven't really studied the Bible and come to that conclusion by a process of investigation they probably read it on someone else's Facebook feed and so on and so on and I'm not, I'm not making fun of that but we all know that's what happens right? That, that is what happens, let's be honest now that's the popular level attacks. Let me read to you the slightly more serious attacks. This is by a man named Sam Harris. You all might know of him. He's one of these very famous new atheist types. Um, he's written a few books. I forgot it. A Letter to a Christian Nation and all these. A few. I can't remember the titles of them all, but it's the kind of thing. You'll get the idea. He says this. The Bible 
it seems certain, was the work of sand-strewn men and women who thought the earth was flat and for whom a wheelbarrow would have been a breathtaking example of emerging technology. To rely on such a document as the basis for our worldview, however, however heroic the efforts of redactors, is to repudiate 2,000 years of civilising insights that the human mind has only just begun to inscribe upon itself through secular politics and scientific culture. The work of sand-strewn men and women who thought the earth was flat. How often do we hear that accusation coming against us too? Now, I would take issue with every proposition in that sentence and hopefully after tonight we'll have a little idea of why we're going to do this. Now, this is a lot to cover. Some of you who are probably with us in the early years of the church, you might remember I've done kind of hour-long things on this study and could probably do a 10-hour long course on this kind of stuff now. We're going to look at it apologetically, so we know how to respond to some of these things, but we also are going to look at it theologically, primarily. we do that first, because we have to have a foundation in theology before we start engaging the culture, and also so we know it for how we think about the Bible and interpret it and apply it in our lives too. Now, if you were doing a course in systematic theology, there'd be a whole section called Bibliology. That's the study of the Bible, okay, where you're going to be looking at these kind of things. What is the Bible? Where did it come from? I can't do all of that tonight. I'm going to cherry-pick certain parts of this, okay, and then we're going to move on to look at some different stuff as we kind of finish with that. So bear with me. I understand they're probably going to maybe create more questions than answers in some respects because it's one of these topics where there are so many questions. I'll try and deal with them. Uh, feel free to throw your hand up or just blurt out if you want to ask a question or if I say anything, any of these terms that I say that you don't understand, just go for it. So let, let's start. What is the Bible? Firstly, why do we call it a Bible? Does anyone know that? Any, why is it called the Bible, so to speak? There's, no, there's nothing really like amazing about this. It's simply because the Greek word biblos you know, came into our language via English, via French and that way. And we just call it the Bible now. That's, that's what it's called. So nothing special there. But the Bible is, we would call it in Christian circles, it is special revelation. You remember there's two types. There's general revelation. That is the knowledge of God revealed to us through creation and conscience and these kind of things. And then we have a category called special revelation. This is knowledge of God that is revealed to us solely through the Holy Scriptures. And this is what we're dealing with tonight. The Bible is not one book, it is a collection of 66 different books. It is law codes, there's narrative, there's poetry, there's there's personal correspondence, there's letters, there's all sorts of things in this collection of books. Written by over 40 authors over a period of 1,500 years, three different languages over four continents. Okay, Its composition is very, very unique. Now, typically you'll see a Bible divided into what's called the Old Testament, and the New Testament, okay? 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. The word testament really means covenant, okay? So the books are associated with the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. You'll see these terms within those books themselves. That's the Bible in a nutshell, basically. The theology that I want to focus on, and this is the question, you know, we're not just saying this is a book, we're saying this book is very, very unique. Why is that? What does the Bible claim for itself, and can we make that claim and understand it? If you if you have a Bible, there's some on the table there, you can turn with me to 2 Timothy 3.16. I want to just talk to you about what's known as the doctrine of inspiration in theology. I am going to read it, so I mean, don't, don't worry too much, but I always like to see people turning in their Bibles. <laughs> 2 Timothy 3.16. I think it's, it's a verse that everyone should really commit to memory at some point. That's right. Okay, ready? It says this. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Okay, This is a a famous verse in theology because it deals with this doctrine of inspiration. Now the word inspiration, what do we mean by that? Quite literally it means God breathed. 
Okay. Now, when we say something is inspired, often we're focusing on the, you know, the genius of the the kind of the person who's put all his effort into it. In in this sense, it's a passive. Uh, the verb's in the passive form here, and it really means breathed out, as in it is the sole creation of God. It's breathed out. It is the result of the breath of God. Okay. Now we'll, we'll come back to that in a li- little little moment. But it says all scripture. Okay, there's that word there, scripture. You'll see this word used 50 times in the New Testament to, f- to refer either to the Old Testament. And in a couple of places you'll see it associated with uh, the New Testament too. Because strictly you could argue that this verse here is referring to the Old Testament. Okay, because Paul's writing this at this time. This, the New Testament's not completed, it's still in construction. He's obviously referring to, the, to the, the canon of the Old Testament at this time. However, even within the New Testament, you'll see in 1 Timothy 5.18 that uh, the Apostle uh, Paul writes to Timothy here, and he, he, he makes an argument by quoting from the Gospel of Luke and pairing that quotation with a passage from Deuteronomy. Okay, so he's quoting the New Testament, the words of Jesus, as Scripture, and he's putting them on the same level as, as the Torah, um, which is a very huge statement uh, at this time. So that one of the, the reasons why we understand that this all Scripture is to be taken of the entire New Testament. Second Peter 3.16, you find the same thing. Peter, in this instance, is referencing Paul's writings, of which will be the majority of the New Testament, and he refers to them as Scripture. Okay, and all scripture is inspired by God. So there is, there is that understanding. And then it goes on to say, obviously, why scripture is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction uh, and all of these things that we find uh, necessary in the life of a Christian. That's the first verse that deals with inspiration. The second is Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21. You can turn there too. These two verses usually go together. Second Peter 1, says this. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. But men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Okay, It says it was not made by an act of human will. This is not something that originated with the ideas of the apostles, so to speak, um, on the one hand. This was God's doing. But when it says moved along, the idea here, the image, the wordplay in, in the Greek is, is the picture of like the wind carrying along a ship by sail. Okay, If you could imagine that picture, it kind of moves it along. It's even used of that in that example in the book of Acts. The same word there. It was the will of God that he used the human authors, but it didn't originate in the, in the mind of the human authors in that sense. So how this actually plays out uh, you know what's going on here we're not entirely sure we're just not told these are really the main two verses we get of that on these verses if we were to form a definition of inspiration let me give you one a one that's uh, quite a popular theology book you'll find this okay and this is this is important to understand it says the holy spirit's this is a definition of inspiration the holy spirit's superintending over the writers so that while writing according to their own styles and personalities, the result was God's word written, authoritative, trustworthy, and free from error in the original autographs. That's a result of definition. And you'll notice the, the implications of that. It's authoritative and it's sufficient. Okay? We have uh, another teaching in the Christian faith where we say the Bible is our authority as the Bible should be, the authority for all Christians on every issue for all times. It is totally sufficient. The word of God is everlasting. It does not perish. The word of God is pure, it says. The sum of your word is truth. The word of God is living and active. On and on and on we get these kind of statements. You'll remember Jesus when he was facing temptation. He quoted from the authority of Scripture. It is written, it is written, it is written. This is the authority of Scripture. And we need to understand that because there's a big movement today. Powerful stuff, powerful stuff. It's a big movement today to really deny the sufficiency of Scripture by saying things like, well, Paul, he was a bit of an old misogynist, wasn't he? He was a little outdated on his, on his teaching there. We need to update that. God, he didn't understand um, 
personality, identity disorder or whatever. So obviously that's out of date. And you'll see this going on. Uh, is anyone familiar with the Babylon Bee website? Are you familiar with this? It's basically a Christian satire site that's popped up in the last couple of years. And it pokes fun at some of these issues in the Christian life. And obviously it's run by Christians. I mean, it, it, it is quite a funny site. This one just came up the other day that made me, made me laugh because it was related to this. And it says, this, this was like the headline, and then it has like a mock article. And it confuses a lot of people because people see it on the internet and they think it's real. And then you, you read the threads and it's like, it's just funny. Um, it says this, progressive Christian, uh, progressive Christian, if you're not familiar with the lingo, that, that would be what we would probably class as maybe a liberal Christian, maybe a hipster Christian, you know, one of, one of these, these kind of things. Uh, uh, it says this, progressive Christian refreshes Bible app to see if God has updated his stance on homosexuality. And that, that's the car made me laugh when I read that. I found that very funny. And then the article was actually talking about one particular case that had been in the news recently uh, that was pretty much, not quite as silly as this, but it was the same kind of thing. But you see, when you're doing things like this, you are, whether it be that issue or a million other issues, God doesn't need insight or updating from, from the human culture. Yes, we can incorporate things to give us a better understanding and understand the culture in different things, but as long as we're not saying that God's word was insufficient or wrong on these things. Now, e- even in evangelical circles, there's a huge movement today to explain away some of the hard parts in the Gospels. You know, you get these different narratives and sometimes they read like they contradict. Which is, if you ask any police officer who deals with eyewitness testimony, you'll say there's always different contradictions. If they're all exactly the same, you'd know they'd colluded and it was a lie anyway. Um, but there's a, a movement today in, in cir- scholarly circles at the moment, and I just raise it now because in a f- couple of years it, it will be in the popular level books, and they try and say that the, the Gospels are like a biography, a Roman-style biography, and Roman biographies always contained a, a mixture of legend and fact, and that's how they made them exciting for people. And, and they're actually pushing, and these are conservative evangelicals, and that's the, the view they're pushing for. So just make you aware of that in case you read, come across that. Uh, I don't believe that's an accurate view to have. So this is the doctrine of inspiration. Huge amounts more could be said, but ultimately, the Bible is the result of the outbreathing, the breath of God, as he used the human authors to record what they wanted to speak to us, to the first generation, and to every generation since. Now, there are some implications from this. We don't believe that the Bible contains errors. God doesn't err. It says God does not lie. He goes, you know, he does not make mistakes in that regard. And this then raises the question of why we, you know, people will obviously come and they'll go online and they'll read, you know, type in 100 mistakes in the Bible and they'll get this list come up from one of these websites and they'll usually go through all of them. If you're the type of person who does that, I'm not going to go through all those things. I'm just going to say, if you want to, you know, there are plenty of big encyclopedias done by theologians that will answer pretty much most of them. I can't possibly remember all of them. I've dealt with some of them over the years and these kind of things. There are some we, we can't really resolve yet, but I want to really look at now some evidence of why we say, you know, is there any evidence that we can provide that does show that the Bible is firstly historically accurate, secondly a divine source behind it, as in is it actually inspired um, and what it does in our lives basically. So we're, go- we're going to kind of switch gears and go through this kind of stuff a little bit now. The way I like to do it is I like to use an acronym MAPS. Some of you may have heard this, it's quite popular online. M for manuscripts, A for archaeology, P for prophecy, S for science, and then I add a couple of things on the end of that, but it doesn't make a word, so it doesn't really work, so I I do it separately. I've yet to come up with one that works. Um, So let's deal with manuscripts, because as I'm sure you're aware, what we have in our hands here today is obviously a printed page. Now mine is Italian calfskin leather, custom made with antique ridging on the spine. Yours probably aren't. But, um, you know... The text inside is the same, pretty much. There are different translations. We can uh, explain a little bit why we have different translations in, in a while. But all of these come from manuscripts. So when we're looking at manuscripts, we basically want to apply three basic tests of historiography, okay, that are used not just to... Uh, you use these to assess the, the reliability of any ancient manuscript. Okay? 
the, the, the three tests are the bibliographic test. Okay? This deals with how many manuscripts there are and how close they were written to the original document. And then you have the internal test, what does the manuscript claim for itself, and the external test, is there any corroborating evidence outside of it to confirm what it says. Okay? We're basically going to do that as we go through these things, but in a kind of very abbreviated form. And does anyone know how many original language manuscripts we have of the New Testament? It's about 6,000, just under 5,795 at the latest count, I think that was done. There are still people discovering manuscripts in various places. Uh, there's a team at the moment who are going around libraries, ancient libraries of the world, to uh, digitally photograph all the manuscripts in case they ever get destroyed. Uh, and quite often they report that they found three uncatalogued manuscripts, Bible manuscripts, within the, you know, the Greek National Library or something like that. So the count, the count does still going up, uh, up and up and up. And we have over 19,000 manuscripts in other languages, Latin, Aramaic, Syrian, and all these different, Syrian, all these other different languages, Coptic rather, um, that still help us to understand the text of the Bible. Now, in case you're thinking that doesn't sound particularly impressive, I can assure you, when we're talking about ancient manuscripts, that means that the Bible is by far the most attested ancient document in all history by a mile and probably always will be okay some of the other ancient documents we have like homer's writings and things like that one of them is pushing a thousand copies in the greek manuscript now but they are sometimes up to seven eight hundred years later okay um the bible about twenty five thousand twenty six thousand almost now in total dating back to for the earliest we probably have copies of is from 125 AD and that's a fragment I'm going to pass this round you can see that this is the John Ryland's papyrus it's one of our earliest Bible manuscripts uh, there's more to it than this but this is just the famous part from the Gospel of John these manuscripts are not all complete some of them are fragments some of them are codexes some of them are books some of them are little bits here little bits there this was found in a garbage dump in Egypt as they were excavating, along with a number of other very rare manuscripts. The papyruses don't usually last that long, you see. That's why we don't have many of them, because they, they perish quite quickly. But obviously in the hot, dry, kind of buried sand, some of them got preserved. And what they used to do, used to do is when these things off, at various times got confiscated or were you know, taken away when the Christians were persecuted, they would just be thrown away. But quite often they would make them, they would use the papyrus to make mummies in Egypt. You know, they did it with cats and animals and all sorts of things. Uh, so one of the things that archaeologists do now is when they find these mummies, they can't wait to slowly peel off all the papyri that have been wrapped on. And we found many, many Bible manuscripts doing that. It's quite amazing. You can pass that through. But that's 125 AD that's dated to. And that's the Gospel of John, written by John. That's within 35 years of his death pretty much, when he wrote the book of Revelation. Okay, that, that is unheard of in, in you know, bibliographic tests in the ancient world. It's absolutely unheard of. The Bible is very, very unique like that. I'll pass a few more around. This is known as the Ketef Hinnom Silver Scroll. Okay, this is, I think, think it still stands today as the oldest portion of the Hebrew scriptures available today, dating to the 7th century B.C., 7th century BC, this was found in a tomb and these scrolls were basically little amulets that were rolled up and they were on people's necks basically, and when they took the scrolls off they unrolled them and written on this is the benediction that Doug says most, most weeks, the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face shine upon you be gracious to you, lift up his countenance on you and give you peace number 6 uh, this is a pretty much very good I mean, it's so early, this is written in what they call proto-Hebrew, not even like the Hebrew that a lot of the manuscripts are written in. You can have a look at that. But that is just a very important thing that we have, showing that obviously the text, if the, you know, it's been around long enough that you have copies and people are making it into jewellery and things like that. The text has obviously been around for a long time before that. Um, so we have the manuscripts... A little bit later, these generally, after the papyrus, they started writing them on vellum, animal hides, these kind of things where you'd have, obviously, the tourist scrolls. I'm sure you've all seen these huge pictures of these massive tourist scrolls, things like that. A little bit later, they started making what they call a codex, 
um, for the Bible. This is really where the early books come from. Uh, we have some of the great kind of unsealed manuscripts like Codex Vaticanus and Alexandrinus. These are like the earliest versions we have of complete Bibles. They're huge things and they're big kind of things like that. Uh, you know, we found Codex Vaticanus hidden in the depths of the Vatican Museum down there at some point that they weren't releasing to the public. And another one was found in a, in a waste bin in a, as fire material in a monastery in Egypt in the 19th century by a man named Constantine von Tischendorf. It's a great name. Love that name. But he, uh, he went to stay there for a night as he was hunting the Middle East for Bible manuscripts. He was sitting in front of his room. They brought him a basket of wood and old papers to light his fire with. And he was pulling them out. And as he was about to put them on the fire, he noticed, obviously, the text on them. And obviously, being a, uh, an expert in this kind of stuff, he got very excited, pulled them all out, um, they noticed how excited he was getting and they tried to take them all back from him and there was a bit of a fright over the coming years before he could get his hands on them. But he eventually got his hands on the, on the entire manuscript, um, which is what we know as Codex Sinaiticus today. I, mean, it's almost, I forget, it's, it's almost a complete version of the Bible. It's one of our earliest, earliest texts. Obviously then, for, in 15th century, you have the invention of the printing press. Uh, this changed things. Uh, the Bible's being translated all over the place now. You have early translation, Wycliffe, the, the earliest English Bible. Some of you may be familiar with his name. The name we probably all owe a debt to is William Tyndale in the English language. He was the first one to kind of retranslate the Bible from the original languages and give us... Uh, so I've jumped in history a little bit. From about the 4th century, sorry, up until the 15th, 13th, 14th and 15th century, the only Bible available was really the Latin Vulgate. Okay? This was because the Roman Church really came to power in the 4th century. They did an official translation, the Vulgate, Jerome translated this. Um, it was a good translation for what it was. But obviously more and more manuscripts were found over the years. And people, Latin kind of fell out of use basically. You'll see it's used in liturgical purposes in the church still, but no one really speaks Latin. So they decided we need there was a move in England particularly to translate the Bible so that people could actually read it, the common man, because at this stage the Roman church was obviously deceiving people uh, with what the Bible actually said and making them do various things and keeping it from them. And there's people like William Tyndale and John Wycliffe, his predecessor, who rose up and said that you know our lifelong ambition is to make sure that, uh, I forget the expression, the man behind the plough knows more of the Bible than the Pope does. Um, and that, that's pretty much pretty much what they did. The Bibles we have today are pretty much a, le a legacy of Tyndale. From there you, you have the Geneva Bible, the Matthews Bible, the Coverdale Bible, and then moving into the King James Bible. Um, most of us know the King James, not the old King James, but we know the new King James. And then you had the discovery. This was about the time you had the discovery of all these new manuscripts these big codexes and things like that. This led to a kind of revolution in, in textual studies, and that's when you started seeing the NIV and the New American Standard and the ESV and all, the, all these kind of different newer translations come out that take a lot of their, their background from the new manuscripts. There's not really much difference. I believe if you read an NIV and a King James, you'll, you'll have exactly the same story, the same doctrines and everything like that. But there are some small differences, but they're not really... No. There are lots of them. I mean, a codex is just a word for it. It's just like what they called an old, an old book, basically. It was like a hinged thing. It was like a very early book, if you imagine. Instead of a spine, it had like these kind of sewn, sewn hinges. Um, and it was just pages, basically, of manuscripts. So it was, it was text, text of the Bible. But obviously, there were no chapter or verse divisions. Uh, and in some of these manuscripts, there was no such thing as upper and lower case. Uh, and no spaces between words. Uh, so it was just... Just a lot, of, a lot of text, that's how they used to be written. And it was just books. Um, some of them are complete Bibles. Some of them are just books. Some of them have like the Apocrypha with them and these kind of things. Um, so there's, there's quite a lot of variation there. But they are used by translators. Obviously, they're very valuable for people who translate the Bible into English. And they've been used. If you, you, know, you might see a little footnote in your Bible when there's a little verse in brackets, some manuscripts don't contain this verse. 
this is one of those issues that they have where there's a bit of a discrepancy between the manuscripts. Yeah, this is just some of the stuff in my bedroom. It's not allowed in my bedroom. It has to be up in my office, I'm afraid. It's not allowed anywhere else in the house, actually. So that, that's the little history of, of manuscripts there. Again, huge amounts that could be said to that. The takeaway fact is the Bible is the best attested manuscript in the whole of the ancient world. Okay? If anyone wants to throw out the Bible on the basis of, of historiography as not being reliable, they have to throw out all of ancient history. Everything we know about Caesar and the Persian Wars, all these things are based on way less evidence than we have for the Bible. Okay? I want, that's what I want you to take away with this, because that's a challenge that people often have. Now, let's go on to archaeology. And this is a separate field. Again, huge amounts we could say on this. I want to just highlight a few things that specifically authenticate various parts of the Bible for us. And this is a real fun subject uh, for all of us who used to like Indiana Jones. Um, we don't have the Ark of the Covenant, I'm afraid. There are some people who say they have it in Egypt, a group of Ethiopian Christians who are kind of have a long tradition, but they won't let anyone see it for some reason. So think what you will about that. But there are over 25,000 archaeological sites throughout the Middle East and in biblical lands across Europe, stretching back all the way to the time of the early parts of the Old Testament, that have helped us establish many unique details about the Bible, confirming historical people, historical events, the battles, the cities, uh, the geography of the land, local customs of the time, huge amounts of them. And they're still being found every day. I think in the house group a while back I shared to you three or four things that were just found last year. Every time they kind of turn a spade over in Israel at the moment, they seem to find some new piece of archaeological information. Uh, There's a famous archaeologist in Israel called Dr. Eliat Mazar, uh, she's, she works at the Hebrew University. She's been responsible for quite a lot of the excavations around uh, the old city of Jerusalem. And last year she found, I think it was, I think it was some gold coins that were from the Second Temple period. And, and during the interview she made a statement which was very interesting. It's quite hard to find now, but I, I remember at the time it stuck out at me, so I kept the original article. Um, I tried to find it again online recently, and I couldn't actually find it. But she said this, she says that she conducts her excavations, quote, with the Bible in one hand and a spade in the other, because the Bible is the best historical resource. Okay? And this is not a believing Christian, this is just a secular Jew who's an archaeologist who happens to have discovered quite a lot of fantastic stuff around Israel. Now, I find that an amazing statement. Okay? If you want to go back to the fairy tale um, analogy, okay, has anyone ever said that about Grimm's fairy tales? Okay. Does anyone say that about Snow White? Or any of these things? Okay. There's just no comparison there. And, and to make such a claim really just shows the ignorance of the one who's making it. Um, and it's, for us, it's a very good opportunity to be able to share some of this stuff. Because um, this is really interesting stuff. Now, I'm going to just highlight a couple of things for you here. Because I have replicas of them. But they're also good ones, okay? So, Kai, if you could grab that and pass that around. Yeah, you can pass it, you can pass it around. That's all right. Yes, these are only replicas, I'm afraid. The real ones are scattered in, around in museums across the world. Um, I, I do have quite a big collection of old Bible manuscripts, like leaves from the King James and Tyndale's Bible and things like this, but they're actually behind a frame. I'm not bringing them out of the house. So. <laughs> but they are there. They're really cool. Okay, this here is known as the Tel Dan tablet. Okay, this is a really, really important piece of, of archaeology concerning the Bible. Now, on this tablet, it's, basically, it's written in Aramaic, and it's basically... Uh, kind of bragging record or an inscription of one of the kings. See <laughs> Siri to check if I'm what I'm telling is accurate. Um, the House of David, the Tel Dan inscription. Now, what's special about it is this is basically one of uh, the kings of the neighbouring countries who was in a battle with Israel, 
and the amazing thing about this is in this record it says that he not only beat the king of Israel he also beat the king of the house of David okay so you have here a historical reference to the house of David you also have corroboration that there was a point in Israel's history where it split into two different dynasties we know it as Israel and Judah the house of Israel and the house of David now that's a very peculiar detail that the Bible records you know that's probably quite hard to corroborate but right here you have a, a record of a king who fought both of these people and he brags about obviously there's a lot of there's a lot of monuments and a kind of stele that are made in the ancient world and are bragging of victories of battles um, and we get a lot of information from the Bible uh, on various ones of these but that, that's the Teldan tablet the house of David it's kind of on the third line I think on the right hand side of that of that thing very very interesting again now this one here I'll pass this around it's a tiny little thing if you look really closely you can see writing on it I have no idea pass that around how they read it but they do now if you see here that's basically it this is a book called Through the British Museum with the Bible if you're ever interested in going to the British Museum we probably have one of the best collections of biblical artefacts and it, it's right there and it's highlighted I'll tell you what it's about at the moment this is known as the Babylonian Chronicle for those of you familiar with the Old Testament a huge part of the Old Testament is taken up with Babylon and Israel King Nebuchadnezzar these famous characters that you have fighting against Israel it was Babylon that took the Israelites into captivity Okay, so it's a very, very important character. Now, this is the Babylonian Chronicle. What this chronicles, this is issued by Nebuchadnezzar, and it basically describes the Battle of Karshemesh that you'll find written about in the Bible, but it also describes, and it uses the words, uh, telling the battle when Nebuchadnezzar took, and he says, the city of Judah. This is Jerusalem. Okay, now if you remember the story in the Bible, there's again some very specific details that are given. The Bible records that when Nebuchadnezzar took over Jerusalem, he removed the king and he placed his own man, Zedekiah, in the king's place. So they had basically a king that would do what they want in that area. On that Babylonian chronicle, it actually says that he removed the king and they placed their own man in there. Um, I won't read, it's quite a long translation, I won't read the whole thing for you. But again, that is a very, very, very good corroboration of a very unique situation within the ancient world that, again, is recorded for us in the Bible. The British Museum is full of stuff like this, but that's the Babylonian Chronicle. Okay? Not only is it from Nebuchadnezzar, a historical Bible, it talks about the city of Jerusalem, and it talks about two kings, again, one being taken away, um, I think that was Jehoiakim who was taken away and then Zedekiah was put in his place by Babylon at that time um, again the, these kind of details are pretty much unheard of again it's very very accurate stuff now two more and then we'll move on from archaeology because we could go on all day this one here doesn't look like much it's a piece of pottery with some Hebrew writing on it Okay, it's, it's known as the House of Yahweh Ostracon. Ostracon is just clay, clay pottery, basically. You can pass that round. There's a couple of things that are interesting about this. Firstly, it's dated to within a high, about 130 years after the building of Solomon's Temple. It is an ancient tax receipt. Okay, it's an ancient tax receipt to Solomon's Temple, and it says on it uh, something to the effect of pay three shekels to the temple of Yahweh okay the temple of Yahweh was Solomon's temple so you have a corroboration of Solomon's temple you also have the holy name of God written there Yudhei the tetragrammaton the temple of Yahweh being used on this early tax receipt there um, again so this is right back to the time of Solomon okay the first temple now I find this very interesting because you might have been aware that the United Nations passed a vote just a few weeks ago declaring the Temple Mount to be occupied Jewish territory even the western wall of the Temple Mount as in the Temple Mount where Solomon's Temple stood to be occupied territory 
Um, things like this just make that claim absolutely ridiculous. Okay, going back all these years, uh, we have evidence of Jewish occupation of that land. But that's a different, that's a different discussion. Okay, one more now dealing with something from the New Testament. I won't pass this one round, but you can all see that there. Uh, the real one is about four times the size of that. I'll just, just say that to you right now. This is known as the Pilot Stone. Okay, has anyone heard of the Pilot Stone before? Basically, for a long time, critics scoffed at this mention of this very important character in the Gospels, Pontius Pilate, Prefect of Judea, because um, no one had any evidence of him. It was a big problem. And then at one point they were excavating an old amphitheatre in the area and they picked up one of the seat stones and underneath on the bottom of it was a beautiful inscription that says, To the people of Caesarea Tiberium, Pontius Pilate, Prefect of Judea written on it. It was a dedication stone to a temple that he built, basically, at the time. But it's very, very crucial because, again, it confirms historically one of these people that are crucial in the narrative that we have uh, to do with the life of Jesus and the sentencing of Jesus and all these kind of things. We could go on and on and on. I've brought a pamphlet, pamphlets here if any of you are interested. These are 50 proofs for the Bible from archaeology for the Old Testament and 50 proofs for the New Testament. You'll find, I think, in total, there's over 160 historical characters from the Bible that we've confirmed by archaeology. Again, I want you to have these thoughts in your mind when you think about the claim that it's a fairy tale. These kind of things just don't add up. Okay, there's too much there. I'll leave them there. You can look at them at your own time. Right, we'll rush through the last ones now. Let's move on from archaeology to prophecy. So, so far, manuscripts and archaeology really deal with the fact that this is a historically reliable book in many, many circumstances. It has huge pedigree in its manuscripts and in its archaeological verification. Now we're going to do it, but that doesn't mean that it's divinely inspired still. You know, you can get other books that maybe have a lot of uh, real history in them that are accurate. The claim we make is more than that, that it is divinely inspired. It has a source that is, as we read in that scripture, from God. So is there any evidence that we can present that speaks to that. Now, I believe there is. I'm only going to very briefly touch with it here, but this is the evidence of what we would call biblical prophecy. Okay? This is very different to the word prophecy and how it's used today, people like Nostradamus and all that kind of stuff. It's very different. Let me read to you a verse of Scripture. It's Isaiah 46, verse 9 to 10. You can turn there if you have a Bible. It's a very good one to have highlighted. Where the Lord says this to the prophet Isaiah. He says, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things which have not been done. Okay, what he's saying there is, the way I'm going to prove to you who I am is I'm going to tell you things in advance, and you're going to see that they come to pass. A little later on, two chapters later, he says there, he says this, Therefore I declared them to you long ago. Before they took place, I proclaimed them to you so that you would not say my idol has done them. Okay? He uses this argument of him being able to organise and predict history as a way to show the Israelites that these totem poles that they were worshipping and these Baals and all these Ashtaroth and things like that didn't have the power to do this. It separates the God of the Bible from all these other supposed gods. Predictive prophecy is unique to the Bible. You won't really find it in the Book of Mormon or the Quran or any of these other, or the Hindu Vedas or anything like this. It's absolutely unique to the Bible. Now, there's about 31,000 verses in the Bible in total, a little bit over, but we'll round it down, 31,000. Eight and a half thousand, uh, roughly, probably just under that, eight and a half thousand verses contain what we call predictive prophecy. Okay? That's about 27 to 30% of the entire Bible that com- contains predictive prophecy prophecy. There's a lot in there. And we're not talking vague prophecies. Some of these are very specific. You have prophecies to do with the Messiah, where he would be born, how he would die, what he was going to teach, where his life would be, all these kind of things. You have prophecies to do with entire nations, which nations would invade them, where they would come from, where they'd be taken out of their land, what their lives would be like, when they'd come back to their land. Nation Israel, obviously, I'm talking about. And you have destruction of various other cities predicted in the Bible, some of them very, very precise, particularly in the way that they were destroyed. This is part of biblical prophecy. It's unheard of. It's it's unrepeatable by anything else. The reason for it is that God says, 
I'm going to tell you this stuff before it happens so that you know that I'm the God of history, the God of the universe. This is the thing that really gives us very objective evidence for the divine inspiration of the Bible. It had to have its source, or the intelligence behind it was a source from outside our time domain, being able to accurately predict and bring to pass things exactly as he wanted it. You could have a lot of fun. Uh, I'd just ask you all to track that down on your own or talk to me afterwards. The last one, S. This is science. Now, the Bible is not written to really deal with science in many areas. Obviously, it's a revelation of God's redemption of mankind, salvation, and these kind of things. But the Bible does say, if I tell you, you know, earthly things and you don't believe them, why will you believe the spiritual things? You know, the point is that the, the earthly things it touches on, if they're not true, then why should we believe anything else is true in it? The two go together. So where it does touch on various issues of science, it needs to be accurate. Now, obviously, it comes from a supernatural worldview that is slightly different, but I'm not going to deal with that now. Just a few areas where we find some interesting things in the Bible. One is in the area of astronomy. Obviously, the, the Bible claims that the universe had a beginning. Okay? This was unheard of in the ancient world, and it was pretty much not accepted until no more than 60, 70 years ago with, when cosmology, with the Big Bang cosmology. Uh, before that, it was the eternal universe. If you remember, I dealt with that issue with the atheist cosmology stuff a little while ago. The Bible had, in the beginning, the universe had a beginning. Uh, it mentions things about the number of stars being innumerable. Okay? It doesn't sound very impressive to us today, but at the time... Um, Astronomers didn't understand that. They, we had many counts of stars. We were trying to count all the stars in the sky. Uh, they're innumerable. Other things, the Earth is round and not flat. Okay? You often hear this, like Sam Harris, didn't it? These people believe the Earth was flat. Historically, that's just, a, just not true. You know, there were very few people who actually believed the Earth was flat. The Bible says that the Earth is a sphere and it hangs in nothing. Okay, before they could ever see into space and even the ancient Greeks and Babylonians knew this because of all the astronomy that they were doing at, the, at that time and the shadows and the sun casts I mean, they, they figured this stuff out uh, so ancient man was not as stupid as, as many of these people uh, they call it chronological snobbery is the technical term when you see people writing uh, this kind of stuff but that, that's astronomy uh, there's more in that but let's deal with this anthropology, this is a study of, of mankind the Bible claims that all humans are of what, quote, one blood, descended from one man and woman. Again, that wasn't really accepted by evolutionary theory. Obviously now we have the, sometimes they call them mitochondrial Eve and mitochondrial Adam, and they can trace the genetics back, and they, and they obviously do point back to an original origin. Uh, biology, the Bible claims that God created animals after their kind, um, this is one of those things, obviously, we see only people are able to reproduce according to their kind. Uh, the blood circulation, Leviticus 17, that, that life is in the blood. This was mentioned in the Bible. Again, it was only a few hundred years ago where we really caught on to this in modern science. Uh, Bloodletting was a very common practice, uh, even in you know 18th century, this kind of stuff. Uh, geology, you have the water cycle mentioned in Ecclesiastes and in Isaiah. You have the presence of sea currents mentioned in the book of Psalms that led to various fields of, of science that we have today. And on top of all of these, the entire scientific revolution of the Western world is really founded upon the worldview of Christianity. People like Isaac Newton and James Clark Maxwell and all these great people that we have today, they did their science as an exploration of the works of God. Okay? They expected it to work because God is a God of order. That's why we have all this stuff today. Now the last one I would just add, almost nine o'clock and then we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up and this is the one that doesn't really fit with the maps so that's the maps so if someone asks you well why you know do you believe the bible or what is special about the bible you're never going to satisfy them completely maybe but if you have that in your head manuscripts best attested document in history archaeology probably the most authenticated ancient document over 25,000 sites across the world prophecy Eight and a half thousand verses, 30% of the entire Bible is predictive prophecy. Many of it you can confirm still today, predicted before time. And then you have science, some of these interesting facts that we have. And then the last one I always like to add to that, I just called it transforming power. Okay? This is one thing that really stands out about the Bible. It transforms people's lives. Those of us that are Christians here today, you know this. 
Okay? You know this very, very well. There's something different about reading the Bible than reading other books. And God says it would. It's inspired by God. There are testimonies of people all over the world, every nation, every continent, in every age, that will testify to the transforming power of the Word of God. Okay? Now, you could argue, people do argue, that, that testimonies are subjective. You can't expect other people to believe on testimony. Okay, it's not really, I mean, I understand what they're getting at. It's not really valid, though. I mean, personal testimonies can be very, very powerful. You see the apostles standing up and giving their... Paul stands up two or three times, doesn't he, and gives his personal testimony. Uh, these things are very, very powerful. All over the world, we're seeing huge testimonies coming out of the Muslim world at the moment, uh, of Muslims coming to Christ. Uh, many of them, you, you read of our great reformers like Luther and, and people like Wesley and you hear their conversion stories and it's usually just one verse from the Bible that just spoke to their heart and they transform, transformed them. And then, not only that, but we have them then going on and transforming entire civilizations. Okay? The Bible transforms civilizations. Okay? It overthrew the Roman Empire and it overthrew many things over the years in this country it transformed England under the revivals of Wesley and Whitfield and these kind of people and it has done and will do many many times again this shows us there's something very different about the Bible and this is what we'd expect if it was a divinely inspired book much much more could be said I'm going to wrap up with one final quote Um, I think I've shared this with you before but I like it so much. This is a quote from the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. If any of you remember, I think that was, at the time, it was the most watched event in history. I'm very interested. We're probably going to have another coronation of some sort soon. I mean, the Queen's quite old now. Um, Whether it will be a king, a coronation of a king, but I'm very interested to see whether they keep this part in. There's part of the ceremony where the Queen is separated the cameras are taken off as she's covered in she removes all her regalia and she's just in a white robe and the, the, it's the Anglican church who are, who are doing this and they hand her a bible and they say this to her to keep your majesty, our gracious queen to keep your majesty ever mindful of the law and the gospel of God as the rule for the whole life and government of Christian princes we present you with this book the most valuable thing that this world affords here is wisdom this is the royal law these are the living oracles of God. Okay? This book is very, very different to all other books. Okay? And we need to make it the priority to study it in our lives. And it will, all those things that we read for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for edification, for guidance, for spiritual nourishment. It's why we make such a priority of it in the church. Um, and it stands on its own, it doesn't need us to defend it. Um, and it's a real fun subject to study. As you can tell, I probably quite like this subject. Um, so let's end there. I'll just say a quick prayer. If any of you have questions, feel free to shoot them at me. I might not be able to answer them. And then if you need to leave, feel free to leave too. But we'll stick around for a bit if you can. Well, dear Father, we thank you, Lord, for this evening. We thank you, Lord, for your word. I pray that these things would uh, stay in people's hearts, Lord, that they would encourage us uh, encourage our faith Lord as we know and understand uh, what this revelation is and we thank you Lord that it reveals to us the person of Jesus Christ ultimately all these things Lord confirm that the message of Jesus is true thank you for listening for more resources please go to thomasfretwell.com